Do you want to share beside you to put more stuff on or something? Um, that no, I'm okay, thank you. Sure. You're so good to me, Johnny, sir. And I'm such a wagon to you sometimes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You're so you are, good. You are um, <laughs> very difficult. <laughs> I do sometimes get my... Um, Nonsense, Claire. Oh. Nonsense. <laughs> right. Um, the other thing that we do sometimes is that while you're talking, I'll do this. Oh, okay. And vice versa. And when I say I, I mean you. <laughs> Okay, I was just going to say, I'm not going to remember you doing that, Johnny. Oh, yes. By I, I mean you. Okay. Um, Grant. Anyway, now we are rolling here. I do yes. what that sounds like. No, um, I sh- should be should sound totally fine. You're full of wisdom. Right, ready to hit the road. You see, I just can't tell anymore. <laughs> no, that was serious. Right. <laughs> you are full Let of us wisdom. hit the road. Yes, right. The longing for a land where there should be no sorrow, no age, death or decay. The desire to escape the sadness of life. Let even the austere and pious to seek for a happy island. Saint or sensualist, joyous or troubled, all yearned for the blessed island. We begin this episode of Blurney Bellagish, to which you're all very welcome folks, with a line from an early 20th century antiquarian, the rather elaboratively named Thomas Johnson Westrop. And Twistle Westrop will pop up again later in the episode, but by way of introduction, I wanted to begin with this vivid image of a happy island, or the blessed island, free from earthly sorrows, a site of great attraction, as we'll see, for both saints and sensualists, as Westrop notes, in early Irish literature and later lore. I'll let them decide which one we are, Johnny, saint or sensualist. Um, who would know? I think it's pretty obvious, but anyway. <laughs> From Ireland's High Brazil to Britain's Avalon to Greece's Atlantis, the idea of the mythical or magical island is a familiar concept in international folklore. The other world realm which lies beyond the horizon. Chirnanog, Chird Chalingre, and this happy island is our intended destination today. So yes. we hope it is, yes. So we hope you'll bear with us, life belts at the ready, as we journey from with the early adventures through the great sea voyage literature of the Actri and the Imrana to mythical isles of beauty and abundance. We also investigate the 5,253 mythical islands off Ireland's west coast. Hmm. We could be sometime. Is that how many? Well, it felt like it at times, Sorry. to be honest, Sorry. didn't it? Yep. <laughs> Their characteristics and the lore which grew up around them will um, titillate us today, some of which survives even um, to modern times. So let's cast off then into the enchanted mists and speak a little about the other world, that supernatural realm to which our forebears exhibited great reverence and respect. And it's something that we've spoken about in recent podcasts, haven't we, Johnny, this idea of the parallel supernatural world mm-hmm. that lives alongside us. Yes, that was a fine introduction, by the way. Ah, oh, thanks, buddy. Um, I think I'm better when I get, get stuff on paper. Yeah? Yeah. When you let me ramble, I'm quite useless. Uh, um, <laughs> no, no, no such thing I meant to say, sorry. Exactly. Also, when you said about the, when there, you said about the 5,000 Islands, I actually have to admit, I wasn't listening to what you're saying. I was reading a bit of Miles Dillon here, and I had no idea what you well, said. Well, that's you pretty much me representative <laughs> of or what our daily saying? lives, Johnny. Anyway, now, yes, the other world. Um, sorry, what was that? Joking. <laughs> the, the other world. So, yeah, as you're saying, I suppose we'll look at the idea of the other world that's located specifically i suppose on these islands on magical islands sometimes that appear out of the sea and then disappear again mm-hmm. or the idea that individuals are whisked away and led there often by a supernatural woman and then they have these kind of fantastical voyages 
that comprised a kind of a whole genre in the early literature, Achtri, that then became the Imrima, mm-hmm. which are the kind of sea voyage kind of tales, whatever. Um, and yeah, I suppose we'll look at maybe some of the, in the early literature, some of the references to the idea of what happens, why the other world is associated with the far western isles in, in, in tradition and some of the symbolism maybe that, that goes along with that. This is probably um, the first time that we've looked at the other world in terms of overseas and kind of submarine worlds, because often it's kind of subterranean, isn't it? Um, kind of in rafts and forts and yeah. the, the, the physical landscape around us on the mainland. Yeah, and that's what we looked at before with uh, fairy forts in the sense of these, the, the supernatural landscape, I suppose. But part of the, the idea of the other world, in a way, that in Irish tradition, it's often seen as a kind of neither heaven nor hell, but this third kind of realm that exists alongside us is the, is the common thing and we use this term the other world a lot in the study of folk tradition or in, in folk mystics whatever it's not um uh, so yeah but, but when we talk about it it's often described as being rooted in the landscape somewhere sometimes in a fort or in a magical palace that appears in the land or um on this island that manifests basically and so in the sense of say in the in the 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 irish word for the fairies the fairy host is she or sheog um, but the, the earlier Irish spelling for that is S-I-D-H, and the meaning is a tumulus or a cairn or a burial mound. Mm. So this kind of roots the idea of the, the community, the other world community of the dead in the natural landscape, and the idea that maybe sometimes these burial mounds open up at night or they become palaces or these kind of fantastic visions appear and then they, they disappear, basically. Um, but apart from those narratives that focus on the natural landscape and the other world as being rooted in it, mm. Um, you also have this idea of the the other world island that this kind of sudden and fantastic vision appears of a strange island that sometimes disappears as as, as soon as it manifests mm. but people can be seen on it cities or towns or houses animals and um, women hanging clothes out in the washing lines and people working away in the Why fields is a woman and hanging stuff clothes, like that. because that's what uh, women do Claire. oh i see i see they hang clothes and washing lines in, in fantastic vision. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and so these are the descriptions that <laughs> one finds as far as the other world islands are, are concerned um so but when you go to the to the early literature people like miles dylan and dahlia hogan as well have mentioned i suppose the the, the idea of these mythical islands as a a kind of um, as you were describing, like a place of no sorrow, happiness, feasting, joy, abundance. Abundance. Really, yeah. there, I'll read a piece from um, Miles Dillon, a lovely book, early Irish literature, which everyone should have. Um, and in describing the other world and kind of comparing it to, to other versions of the same, he says, The Irish of the world is a country where there is neither sickness nor age nor death, where happiness lasts forever and there is no satiety. Satiety? Is that even correctly? Oh, I pronounced that correctly. Satiety. Well, you know, everything is satiated. 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 Where food and drink do not diminish when consumed, where to wish for something is to possess it, where a hundred years are as one day. It is the Elysium, the island of the Hesperides of the Greeks, the Odan Zakir, the the Yord Lefandamana of the Norse. Alfred Nutt pointed out that it finds its closest analogues in early Greek mythology, and he suggested that it represents ancient Indo-European tradition. Nice. So this is the kind of this is the, the 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 conception of the other world in northwestern European tradition as part of broader Indo-European tradition. So it says Alfred Nutt and so on. And it's a theme that we'll actually see some quite strong international links and parallels as we go through the episode as well, which we often see in the podcast. But it just brings home the 
I suppose kind of not to think of Ireland as being insular um, in those early periods. We kind of it's quite easy to imagine to think of us as a little isolated island, but actually we were very kind of forward thinking and outward looking and, and the influences that we had on others, but as kind of other nationalities had on us, and we'll probably see that today. Yeah, especially where you were mentioning before we were talking about um, Patrick's Purgatory, mm. the influence on, on, uh, on Dante. Yes. And didn't Brendan which we'll talk about later in the Navigatio, yes. that party had an, an, an intro and um, an an influence hugely on, so on that epic. Yeah. yeah, the Voyage of Brendan, which we'll discuss as one of the Imrams or the yeah. voyages that kind of travelled all over Europe and we'll see the, the physical impact that had in, in the real world. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it's something that you have to think about when, when you're talking about folk tradition or the, or the motifs that appear in the early literature. Although items in folklore and folk tradition are often used to highlight the specificity or the specific kind of cultural um, identifiers or motifs of a, of a particular people in a particular place, when you zoom out, you see this broader tapestry of a kind of, of a cultural whole that binds us, say, between Britain and Ireland and then Britain and Ireland and Scandinavia and then Northwestern Europe and then, again, that broader kind of Indo-European tradition. You can see these, these commonalities and threads. Um, and it's, it's so it's worth bearing a kind of the international context to it in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Dahi O. Hogan, in his book The Sacred Isle, he talks about some of the reasons maybe why the, 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 the other world was kind of connected with the idea of the West. Um, and he links it, as of other scholars, to the idea of the setting sun. Mm-hmm. And that this at a very fundamental and symbolic level relates to the idea that uh, the sun, as it sets in the West, kind of travels into the land of our dead ancestors which then manifests for us here on Earth as the world of nighttime, yeah. where there is no sun. And then it rises again in the east and brings with it, you know, all the illuminating knowledge that it provides, whatever. Um, but the idea that that the, the setting sun and the direction of west are associated with the other world and with dead comes from that symbolic sense of, I suppose, just that, that idea of uh, the end of a certain life cycle and then it, it beginning again or whatever. I was going to ask about this, but when we mentioned it yesterday when we were chatting I wanted to ask you, do you remember in an earlier podcast we saw that it was, maybe it was House Luck, that it was thought to bring ill fortune to kind of extend your house to the west? Yeah, Is yeah. Is that that church. same idea tying in? I th- yeah, there's the Antaeus Lodgna Yechur Shirasatap. Don't, if you extend your house westward, you think you're stronger than God, you'll mm-hmm. provoke the essence of that direction and the essence of west is death kind of thing. Okay. If that's maybe too simplistic a thing to think of. But um, so the idea being that yeah if you if you kind of extend your home, that domestic space in the direction of the dead and the other world, then that'll somehow manifest. It's a taboo basically. There's great so, symbolism in so much of folklore, ah, isn't there? It's fanta- the it's point of the compass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, colours, yeah. sounds, you name it. Um I mean, you mentioned Avalon and, and King Arthur mm-hmm. earlier on. When King Arthur um, dies, he's he's brought west on a boat to Avalon. Yes, this, to be buried there. Yeah, apparently. exactly. So it's the direction of, even, for example, in Irish tradition or in, in popular speech, when something breaks, uh, it's said sometimes to go west. Or if somebody dies, it's said to go west. Have you ever heard that? Oh. You know, if, something, if something kind of breaks down on you, like, oh, it went west or whatever. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, I was thinking I've heard anyway. But um, in this sense... Um, yeah, Dahi in the Sacred Isle talks about um, references that Julius Caesar makes to, to the idea of this idea of night before day when he's talking about the, the Celts and, and um, uh, the continental Celts, basically, and how he says that they felt that they all, they all descended from, from one kind of great god, this father god, Uchi Allah, who's sometimes the Daija, the Dagda, the good god, mm. or this kind of horseman, all father kind of deity who has a one-eyed horseman who rides across the sky, who is the sun, basically. Um, but Julius Caesar 
says that the Gauls all assert their descent from Dispater and say that it is the Druidic belief. For this reason, they count the period of time not by the number of days, but by the number of nights. And in reckoning birthdays in the new moon and new year, their unit of reckoning is the night followed by the day. That's something that uh, that Dahi used to mention in, that you see still in tradition today that we celebrate for Halloween, say, we celebrate the night before the yes. feast. Or and May Day, it's at sundown it? and May Day. Yeah. It's sundown is when it begins, that mm-hmm. night is before day. And so Dahi then goes on to say that there is in fact strong evidence of the belief in ancient Europe that the sun, when sinking in the west, entered the underworld each night to abide there with the dead. Um, so I suppose this is the kind of the the conceptual framework, symbolic framework, I suppose, that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's suggested then that that the Greeks largely, the Greeks located um, these two huge pillars at the gates of the Atlantic or pillars that held up the sky. Sometimes they're connected with the rock of Gibraltar and another rock. Um, but there were there were there were ideas sometimes that there were these two huge pillars in the in the far western reaches that were that represented the edge of the world where the sky was held up. Oh, I see. Or those are the gates of the Atlantic, basically. Um, and I this, love the imaginative reach. We'll see that again and oh, again. But just the creativity in these amazing. stories is, it is incredible. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it, there are these kind of huge columns basically that are that are described, and so. This is the idea then that Dahi then later ties to another other world island, um, that the idea that the sun sinks through this kind of great archway in the west, basically. And so there's a, this is part of the kind of, again, the, the, the symbolic thinking of locating this other world space where, where the, sun, the sun sets, and that that idea from the Greeks, from the Mediterranean, is kind of spread to the continental Celts, and it marched westward, basically, mm-hmm. even to the idea that, that Ireland was an island of the dead itself, you know. Because um, we were on the periphery for so many, for them to reach us hmm. was kind of coming to the edge of the known world at that time, in, in that early period before the discovery of America and so on. Yeah, what was, there was a colony, there was um, some, I think Dahi mentions colony in Marseille, I think where he thinks that there was this um, a kind of cross-pollination of ideas and kind of from, from the west of Gaul into Celtic regions that this Greek, influ- the Greek ideas influenced the other world beliefs of the Celts, basically. Mm-hmm. But again, it's tying it into to these very old and uh, kind of archetypal almost ideas around the life cycle and the setting sun and so on. Um, in, in Ireland, there's the idea of, of Dun and Tach Dun. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the there's a, an arch, an isle, full island off the coast of Kerry. Um, and there's a quote about, um, yeah, so here we are. Medieval Irish texts describe the belief of the heathen, quote unquote, to the effect that so- souls there in Ireland uh, go to Dun, whose name just means dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the pseudo-history, Dunn is, is euhemorized as one of the leaders of the Gaelic people when they came to Ireland. There's this idea, there's a quote, um, to me, to my house, you all come out to your death, basically. And so Dunn is linked with the sun in the sense that Dunn means dark, but it's the setting sun. And then he has other versions of himself where he, he appears as, as, as Darig or as red. So it's the idea that yeah, the sun, the setting sun, sets in this island, that's where the souls go, and they travel to the, to the other world, basically. So those are some of the kind of the, the conceptions maybe in the early tradition that form that begin to form around ideas of where the other world island is located and why it's in the west okay. and it's connected with because the west is the direction of the dead basically I see and I think it's probably is it fair to say given the impact of Greek and Roman tradition like certainly some of the material I was reading as we kind of step into the the early Irish literature section now that some scholars argued that potentially, Kind of our early clerics would have been aware of some of these and hence why they may have had an impact on these early stories that they were um, 
transcribing into the great manuscripts. Do you think that's that possible? They would have been aware of which? Of? Um, you know, the likes of um, Atlantis and Avalon and um, oh, yeah. these kind of early texts that you were mentioning there through Dylan. Yeah, I think there's, there's more of a knowledge of kind of medieval, like we, although you're saying, you know, Ireland is obviously an island mm. and but it wasn't totally kind of cut off. There was lots of medieval influence or, or cultural influence around medieval Europe, especially from, I suppose, Christian um, the Christian kind of monks and who were who were going abroad, whatever as they were. But I think there was definitely a knowledge of the broader kind of cultural inheritance and traditions. Yeah, it's all so speculative in a way. Like I feel reluctant sometimes to, to speak authoritatively about any of these Nonsense. things. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's tricky. But you, ha- I you guess, know, like I guess, how do you know? Like, how do you prove yeah. this? Well, you don't. It's, there's there's, you just there's have to so make the many webs to, to ta- there are so many tangled kind of webs to try and wade through. I think I guess that's where the the early literature is so useful in that. You can kind of come to see Patterns, it gives you just a certain yes yeah, like it illuminates the dark of the past it makes that strange country slightly more familiar but mm-hmm. it's still just this kind of tangled web basically i think that's why i'd prefer to just wander around it in wonder rather than making kind of definitive claims you know i suppose you do like wandering around in the old any bewildered text, state um but that he was tended and he was very good at that kind of threading a narrative through like this caused this and then this led the Greeks to say this, and mm. then the Celts said here, and picking out these kind of bits now, whether or not you can kind of put such a, such a narrative on on um, or because of such an arc on these on these disparate kind of items is well, I can't, don't think, but mm. no, I certainly couldn't. Um, but I suppose so. What I was saying, the the other world is, is is often conceived of as being rooted in the natural landscape alongside us, sometimes in a fort or in a burial mound, which connects it with the world of the the other world community of the dead, who are also the fairies. Mm. Um, and in other instances, it's often located out to the farthest western reaches as an island that suddenly appears or manifests, uh, but that is connected in some way with the idea of the setting sun and even, I suppose, the sense of, of having to cross a body of water to travel to the other world. You know, has, it's has that liminality, kind of, isn't it? Exactly. But it also has a kind of, of a, a Greek, um, a kind of Greek, um, um, what would you say, a motif, and it's similar mm-hmm. like the idea of crossing the river Styx. You know, yes, true. true. Um, Plutarch mentions something good about Plutarch. He talks about. You love quoting the Brits, don't you? Well, just shoehorning Plutarch just into another. Nietzsche is the one altogether. No, but there's a bit here where Plutarch describes fishermen in, in Britain. Um, here we are, and it's kind of reminds the person, I suppose, of of this idea of crossing the Styx and crossing the, the river to the strange other world of the dead. Um, on the ocean strand opposite Britain, dwell certain fishermen. They hear a voice calling them and a knock at the door. Rising from their beds, they find at the shore unfamiliar boats heavily laden. They grasp the oars and in an hour are across, although their own boats would require one and a half days. That's a common motif as well, that you, yes. you get there really quickly. And the time that you spend time, there exactly. as well. Yeah. yeah. When they arrive, although they see nobody, they hear a voice calling out the names of those who disembark. So it's a kind of strange uh, notion that ties in again with this, the other world island is located. And in this case, the west of, or opposite Britain to the west of Britain or whatever, which would be Ireland, roughly, um, and this connection of although they don't see anyone, they hear these voices, disembodied voices, who of the dead, basically, um, which ties in again. You you start to see these little familiar markers appear over and over again, um, because it becomes we'll probably see this now. Um, looking at the Act Three and the Imrana, because it starts off as kind of the other world. We should always remember is this kind of early pre-Christian I- idea, but then isn't it true to say that in s- Kind of later we do see this confusion with the more christian heaven yeah kind of yeah i think one of the things that happens in the description needs to be kind of clarified and we kind of need to, people to remember that they're two yeah. different ideas yes yeah. you have in the 
um, say in some of the Imrama in the in the the like Imram Mail Dune or we should probably start with the definition if we're if we're going to jump in. Let's um, for the sake of completeness. Yes, um, indeed, Claire. We'll, of course, I, I like a definition. Um, so when we're talking about Athri and Imrama, these are you know genres of early Irish literature. The act, I suppose, some people distinguish them by date so that the Athri are earlier than the Imrama, but essentially what they are are. The actor might be termed as adventures mm. and kind of adventure stories, whereas the Imrama are voyages. sea voyages, more usually, aren't yeah. they? Um, Where the voyage itself became the focus of the narrative. Yes, and, yeah. and there are hugely famous um, examples that exist only. Well, in terms of the Imrama, I think I read only five of them exist in manuscript form to this day, mm. and we'll kind of look at them from Imram Bran to Imram Wildoon, um, Wildoon, and Conla, Con- and, and then. Well, he was an actor, but there's a bit of um, crossovers, whether yeah. he was an actor or an Imram. And then we've got St. Brendan's Voyage as well as an Imram. But um, we're going to look at these in detail because they kind of very much buy into that theme mm. of travel to the other world island. The the um, Funken Wagnall's Folklore Dictionary, which I'd love a copy of myself, I don't have. It says here, Imram, literally, voyages, a class of old Irish stories in which the voyage itself provides the main interest. Um, he th- then a list is given of the extant versions in the manuscripts and they're from the 11th, 14th and 16th centuries and then it says the voyages are prompted usually either by revenge as in the case of Maeldun or pure love of travel or desire to find the happy isles the voyagers visit numerable islands inhabited by supernatural or otherwise marvellous men women, birds or animals the voyagers land here and there or are not allowed to land they see strange things and are told strange things and inevitably learn new wisdom as you do they always eventually arrive at an island more beautiful and marvellous than the others, whose description reveals that some Christian concept of heaven has been superimposed on or adapted to the ancient Celtic visualisation of the other world. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, one of the things that you find in, is it, it's uh, Imran Bran, I think, I could be wrong, where Bran disappears off. Yeah, well, where, where part, part of the prophecies that are revealed to them on their adventure start to have this kind of um, Christian colour and overtone. Yes. Although they'll meet, like, say, uh, the ancient Irish sea god or something like that, or Monarch Malir, who, who's travelling across the sea and says that it's not it's just a flowery plain and all this sort of stuff. Um, so you'll have that kind of pre-Christian flavour and, and kind of component and panorama. And then describes because you have to bear in mind the only reason that we have any of the early literature and the early literary sources is because it was transcribed and taken down by the monks the exactly. early monks with their own agenda with their own agenda christianizing the texts and and kind of um shoehorning quotes from plutarch and, uh, and into, yes. as it were into the into what was a kind of um i suppose the the well the pagan origins the pre-christian um a kind of frame but then, yeah, so so you have to kind of, it's like an archaeological dig sometimes, supposed to pick these things apart, really. Um, but, yeah, we, should we should we start by looking at some of the different the different descriptions in the early literature? I think it wouldn't hurt, but they are, like, I think we read these, oh, years ago now, and kind of, I remember just going through them, and we used to have to do, kind of, we'd only ever get through, like, one page at a time in the old Irish, and it'd be like, another island and then he visits the island of the women and then he visits the island of sheep when did you do oh, this oh years ago in galway did you yeah and we're like Amazing. is he ever getting to where he's going how did you not like them 
I think we were just too young and yeah, just the Irish trying to because we were more focused on very word by word and I just thought lord is he ever getting to where he's going but now when I look back I realise just how vivid the imagery was and oh, it's, it's just the an, it's creativity unreal. and just this imaginative flair that yeah. people had at the time yeah. um, it's incredible to read I have to say and just the poetry of it well if we take a, f- a, few bit, bit, a wee bit of time to go through maybe after the Achterbrand Imran Wildoon and then we could look at more recent folk tradition examples of other world islands and how yes. they maybe carry on with some of the motifs that appear in the early literature but then we'll look at more recent items collected by the folklore commission interviews and stuff like this perfect um do you have any bits that you want to start with or shall um, i rant away here or you can rant away i was just because we were just going to go through the um little kind of synopsis of those emrams weren't we and the the actor conla yeah after do you, do you want to do actor conla first Conla's and i'll jump into brand then grand okay so um, so yeah, this is after Kunle, the adventure of Kunle from the Yellow Book of, of Lekin, around the 8th century. This is when this is kind of preserved from, basically. And it says it here that one day Kunle the Red, son of Kun of the Hundred Battles, was beside his father on the hill of Ishnach. He saw a woman in wonderful attire approach him. This is a common motif, the other world woman who appears and then kind of beckons the hero to the other world. Yes, because he has no willpower himself at all. He's just beckoned. That's <laughs> just what happens. Um, which, actually, I think Dahi had suggested that that might have been, uh, had indicated a kind of um, an echo from the idea of the sovereignty, the king who marries the sovereignty goddess. And he's, you oh, know what I mean? yes, sort of when he takes so. the throne. So, uh, Kunla says, where do you come from, woman? I come, said the woman, from the land of the living, a place in which there is neither death nor sin nor transgression. We enjoy lasting feasts without preparing them and pleasant company without strife. We live in great peace. For that we are named the people of peace. And then Kunla's father, Kun, is there and says, With whom do you speak, boy? Said Kun to his son, For none saw the woman, say Kunla alone. And then the woman answered, He speaks to a beautiful young woman of noble race, whom neither death threatens nor old age. I love Kunla the Red, and I call, I call him to the plain of delight, where reigns a king victorious and immortal, a king without weeping or sorrow in his land since since he became king come with me Kunla the red of the jeweled neck red as flame your hair is yellow over the bright noble face of your royal form if you come with me your beauty will not lose its youth or its fairness forever so they can hear this voice only Kunla can see her but the the Kun the king is pretty freaked out and he says to his druid trouble has come to me which defeats my counsel which defeats my power a strength which I have not known since I became king, that I should meet an invisible form which strives against me to steal away my fair son by magic spells. He is being lured away from me, the king, by women's wiles. Take that. Oh, so God. she then sits, basically, and Kunla has this kind of crisis of sorts, and he begins to kind of uh, wonder, you know, you know what, I think I might like to get out of here and go travel away to the other world. Um and at one point then Kunla springs away from them and he jumps into this ship of glass that's described here as a firm crystal coracle and then the crowd who are assembled the, the king and his retinue and druids and so on they look out farther and farther as far as their eyes could see they rowed out then over the sea away from them and they were not seen since and it is not known where they went so this is the kind of this is um, the, the Achter and Brand the next one is, an, is a kind of Achter as well mm-hmm. but it's these it's these narratives that start as the after or adventures that become that lead into the we think the genre of what is called Imrama or the voyage where mm-hmm. this becomes the more kind of um, so that's that's one of the earlier ones of, of Kunla where this the other world woman um, and the, the feminine aspect I suppose that described in the other world is something that repeats quite um, quite a lot mm-hmm. uh, and the island of women and so on as part yeah, of one of the series of islands that are visited whatever um, so that's one of the early 
um, kind of items that we have. And again, although you know she describes it once she says to come away, although the sun is setting, that the journey will be really swift. It might take an extremely kind of long amount of time in another instance, but it'll be really swift. And that goes back again to this idea that the journey can be made extremely quickly because there's some magical component to it. It's true. And then the time spent there seems quick, but centuries have passed. Yes. And that'll bring us as a nice little segue into nice Imran Bran. Oh, well, finally, the first 50 years of the hardest journey. Yes, yes, I would say. <laughs> so as Johnny was saying, Bran is, there's um, speculation as to whether it should be designated as an actor or an Imran. So it's kind of, it's, we see that shift, I suppose, from one genre into the, into the next. But by way of a um, brief synopsis, I suppose Westrock kind of just gives it quite succinctly here, where he says that Bran was the son of Fable and he was sleeping near his fort. He hears sweet music and awakes to seize a magic apple branch in his hand. An unknown woman sings of a glorious island round which sea horses glisten, a fair course against the white swelling surge. See, again, they like their alliteration as well. Oh, here. Oh, maybe, best, I, best sh- maybe I should have um, paid Wandered more attention. The century. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In it dwells on this island, no wailing, treachery, death or sickness. Again, that idea of a world without sorrow. Um, it glows many colours, it glows many coloured in incomparable haze with snowy cliffs and strands of dragon stones and crystals. Hmm. And then this woman vanishes and Bran with 27 followers embarks upon the journey to find her. They meet the sea god, as you said, Johnny um, Mananan MacLear in his chariot, visit Mel, the Isle of Laughter, the Isle of Women. Um, the Isle of Laughter is kind of freaky. Yes, you were saying this yesterday. They're all a bit d- d- kind of demented. Yeah, weird. Yeah, mm. they that uh, one of his 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 um, uh, colleagues, associates, fellow adventurers, whatever. The, there's a word I'm looking for. And I can't find it. They they step ashore onto this island, and there's they see a crowd of people there, all wandering around, just shouting and laughing. All of them. Yeah, mm. and um, this fellow goes goes ashore, and as soon as he lands there, he begins to shout and laugh. And they, they row the boat towards the shore and they kind of beckon him to come, but he just looks at them shouting and laughing. And they wait there for a while and then they just row away. Yeah. And that's the island of joy, so-called. It's something kind of disturbing about it. Yes, I think I'd be rowing away. It just seems a bit forced, doesn't it? It does a wee bit. Yeah. But um, but back to Bran. Um, so he finally reaches the Isle of Women, to which this queen has drawn him. And entranced by love, the visitors do not note the flight of time, in which case we learn that centuries have passed. And in apparently undiminished youth and strength, they return to Ireland eventually. It is only when they take the first step onto shore that they fall, or that the first man falls to ashes, and they realise what's happened that they've aged. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit like that idea that we're all very familiar with of Chernanog, mm-hmm. that Oshin who went um, doesn't realise that so much time has passed and yeah. he comes back. Oshin and Ian is put on him, and he's told not to get off the horse he's on. Yeah, and when he comes back, he sees an old man. Um, struggling with some load and Oshin uh, goes to get off the horse to help this man and as soon as he steps onto the earth he becomes the age mm, kind of would have been, he inherits yeah. the, the debt of time there and mm. suddenly becomes he's 900 years old or something so it's that those similar patterns kind of continue on but that's what happened to poor Bran so eventually they realised and the survivors sailed off never to be seen again having realised the, the air of their ways. The, the, um, the, when they come up to the, to the island, the Otherworld Island of Women, where the Queen is there and she's calling to Bran and he, he's afraid to land on the island himself and his companions and she throws a ball of twine in his face and he, he puts up his hands to catch it and she then uses it, pulls the twine and, and brings the boat in. Mm. So it's this kind of, it's by some sort of kind of magical trickery of sorts that they're, they're brought there. But when they're there, it describes like each man 
there's a wife there for him and Bran is has is there with the Queen and they all have this fantastic time. They have all sorts of food and feasting and all sorts of crack. But then one of them begins to just miss home for some reason. I forget what the description is there, and that they eventually they, they manage to escape and, and leave. Um, it's like the fishermen in heaven. I was just th- I was thinking that you the know, fishermen you, in heaven. You can have too much of a good thing. Yeah, it, it, that's what I was thinking. What's going through is it is like that uh, that joke or that story, whatever, mm. where the individual who goes to to heaven and then is just keeps catching the fish with great ease all the time, and then realizes this is this is really boring. Mm. Um, There's joy in the suffering sometimes. There is, there is, there must be. Um, you must find some meaning in it. And and some of the fantastic again, this, the descriptions where where Bran is traveling over the um, the water. And meets Bannon McLear, who describes it as a, a flowery plain. And then when Bran and his companions look over, they're floating over this um, wonderful orchard of flowering trees. Just you get these strange descriptions of the boat kind of travelling through the as it's travelling through the air. Um as yeah, as as they kind of as they as they travel along. But lots of these ideas kind of recur as as sorts of these kinds of, of themes, like the island of laughter and the island of women and so on. And the idea that there are so many of them, so every now and again you'll get this thrice fifty islands. Yes, um, they keep visiting countless and countless islands um, out from the west coast, just to give the impression that there are so many islands, um, or that there were off the coast of Ireland in terms of mythical sites. This is the five thousand two hundred and sixty-three. That's where I, I kind of I, gotcha. I did a rough estimate. Yeah. <laughs> well, I play some some uh, tape recording here. That'd be great. This was collected um, in nineteen seventy-five, I think, by Seamus O'Connor. And this is from Pader Barraid, who is from Northwest County Mayo, a beautiful side of the world around Carunagluch, Carruhaig, Kilgallagon, this kind of very remote and beautiful um, part of the world. Um, and lovely Irish here as well. But he's talking about how there was lots of magic in Ireland long ago and these were these kind of other islands, basically, that, that used to exist. And he describes how he, um, what he saw, basically. We need father one. We drift them over again. so he describes you know what you see is what you believe but that there were these kind of islands um and that he carries on to describe that this the scenery basically of seeing uh, people and trees and and little houses and so on here Culture, a good country. A good 
And he's like, it's there, it exists. It's just like we are. And he's describing the kind of what he saw in yeah, houses, land, forests, which is a common... And, and I think to, to many, um, as we'll see, these islands were very real. But I think what got me, and we said this yesterday, um, when we were taught that kind of eyewitness evidence was sometimes the most unreliable type of evidence. That, you in your, when you were doing law? Yeah, whatever, and it's yeah. kind of st- struck me as like, how can that possibly be true? Like when you see something like with your own two eyes, how can it be unreliable? Hmm. And then you realise kind of the person, the time of day, the level of lighting, um, your level of tiredness, whether you have your glasses on or glasses off. Actually, you can be so surprised by how, um, what's the word? Unreliable? vulnerable we are mm. to to mistake mm-hmm. kind of even with our own two eyes it's kind of so to see fog banks or mirages like this someone could be completely certain oh no it was an island yeah yeah it's you see it's funny because i'd be more inclined to think of the the symbolic meaning of these landscapes and, and the the kind of individual way of understanding the landscape in in uh yeah in a kind of symbolic sense or imbuing it with this or even the idea that that the other world and the fantastic can suddenly interrupt into the mundane mm. and it's and it's always just about to happen i remember chatting to dahi hogan years ago and he described being on a boat oh, i forget exactly where it was in the far north somewhere um scandinavia and he said that he saw an island like this mm. that he and he could see um uh, animals on it he thought in houses and kind of and so on but realized it was um a kind of mirage or just a weird vision like of fog or I can't exactly remember what it was but, it curious that but there was something on the sea that he that his mind took to be um took to be a kind of a phantom uh, island but your mind is working and taking in far more information every second than you even realize yeah, it's probably even doing more to to uh, tune information out anything, exactly you know? exactly you know um i remember going up around the hill of tara before but the the leah fall that's down standing up there one evening and i said to you yesterday turning around um, to check if you were the um, standing on the Leofall which for listeners yeah, it screams if you're a king so you step on it you were just fingers crossed it me. was screaming very loudly there's no one there to hear but it was screaming very very loudly <laughs> and then there was everyone, and then there was just a lot of applause it's not convenient it was really weird so after the applause stopped but I turned around and I could see all the fields and the sun setting and so on but then I saw the um, the sea and waves and the ocean there beside these fields and I didn't think anything of it because I wasn't familiar with the place um, but when I turned around a minute or so later, it was all just fields and greenery. And I realised, of course, it's bloody fields and greenery because the sea is miles away and you can't see it at all. So, again, through some um, kind of trick of the mind or some mm, severely supernatural moment, you turn around, you you you, you misinterpret or you don't see mm. what's there, or else you see something else that is there. Is the idea, you know? These are not um, traits for a king that I would feel confident in, Johnny. Uh, what paranoid schizophrenia? Yes. Well, you know, um, but. No, they weren't. They weren't. It wasn't a psychotic landscape. Burn, burn the school. <laughs> no, there wasn't. A, it wasn't a dictated. Actually, no. I think it might have told me to burn and destroy things. Yeah, but um, but yeah, the idea, I suppose, that that these flashes of the fantastic kind of suddenly interrupt and interfere with the mundane and the ordinary, and then some of the imaginative descriptions. This is a thing. Actually, I was thinking about um, what's her name? The the photographer who she took a lot of lovely photos in in Connemara in the thirties. Um, but she wrote about a Karurua. Oh, Price, Kathleen Price. Kathleen Price, yes, yes for 10 points. Kathleen well done Price. you for knowing the women, Johnny. The who? The oh, <laughs> oh, I was that, yeah. So she was um, took these lovely photographs and she wrote a little article on the Karurua and she talked about it, it was a lovely place for, for artists. Mm-hmm. 
um, and she's talking about kind of high art and paintings and so on, and then talks about the people there and the landscape, the beauty of the landscape. But when I was reading it, I also thought that the fishermen and the, the people working on the land and, and their houses and so on often are the artists. In, in, and we have that from, from the items of folk tradition that are described with such imaginative beauty and power and, mm. and n- not even the high kind of um, artistry and, and expressive kind of power of, of the, the early poets and, and the, the monks and so on and so forth in the early literature, but just the, the material that could get that, that is passed down to us mm. um, in oral tradition is just... It's amazing. We should be so grateful for really. Oh, good grief! And we don't draw on it. And and even to go on on another sort of a kind of a a tangent, perhaps whatever. People often think in some sense that art is like that. Art in some way is a kind of um, some sort of afterthought when material conditions are kind of uh, when you reach the material level of comfort, you can consider art. But it's the opposite. It's the inverse opposite. The symbolic and artistic is the starting point of of uh, culture or civilization or whatever you look at say those the the, cave, the beautiful cave paintings in, in the caves in france that are about thirty thousand years old or something like mm-hmm. that where people had to crawl in pitch black through these terrifying kind of crags and crevices to paint these beautiful images uh, on the walls like why the hell did he do that you know that's not because it's not as though you reach some sort of material comfort and then decide you know what let's uh, paint some sort of cuboid horrific modern piece of rubbish or whatever it's it's the opposite it's it's culture and the art and the symbolic and the transcendent that starts and then everything comes after that now was that your um plea to be king that was probably more successful was it yes i would go with that line really yes um should we talk about mild dune briefly it'll have to be briefly now because we have um okay should we not some of the descriptions are are have we do we think we've just done too much on the on the uh it was I think it's interesting because this is certainly where the lore that we'll come to now comes from and has kind of taken influence from mm-hmm. so I think it's important to mention it well okay so we'll go as briefly as we can this Perfect, is right. one of the the, the Imrima the, the voyages of Maeldun Maeldun um, is the foster child to a queen the queen of Ireland and he thinks that he is her son in a taunt it's revealed to him that a, a, a companion taunts him and it's revealed that he's actually the love child of a nun which is particularly disappointing and that his father was killed by marauders from Leash. Mm-hmm. So um, Maeldun sets off, excuse me, with his foster brothers to find these marauders. Comes to an alehouse, hears a drunken man boasting about how he, he murdered this man's father and as soon as that happens a storm comes up and whips them away and suddenly they find themselves out at sea in a boat with no sight of land anywhere. So they let the boat float wherever God will uh, send it. They then visit, this is the kind of thrice 50 islands kind of scenario and they go to all these strange islands where one is covered with giant ants that want to eat them. Um, one is where there's an old man floating on a sod that was made at the beginning of time that uh, the sod grew into an island and now it's inhabited in the trees. His his forebears lived there as birds that in the trees. He gives a kind of strange prophecy to them. Um, they go, at one point, they see a giant beast on top of an island that revolves, its bones all revolve, in its, but the skin stays still. It's very or else Harry, the skin whips around and the bones stay still. So there's an island full of... Um, um, kind of burnt blackened people who are just going around screaming and wailing and one of their companions goes onto that island and he just starts screaming and wailing and they have to go they have to go away um but one of the interesting parts they see this kind of this other world music the other world um uh, the idea of the other world is a place of feasting and joy it says here then they saw another island which was not large with a wall of fire all around it and that wall revolved about the island there was an open doorway in the side of the wall and each time the doorway came in front of them they saw the whole island and all that was on it with all its inhabitants many handsome people in lovely garments with golden cups in their hands as they feasted and they heard their ale music 
and they were there, they were for a long time watching the wonder which they saw and they found it delightful so this is the kind of i suppose again the the uh the vision of the other world that appears um which again ties in with a place of feasting a place of joy a place of strange imaginary power uh strange visions fantastic visions the imparting of wisdom uh, a dangerous journey um from which they narrowly escape often just from kind of god saves them or whatever where the christian and the pre-christian overlap and intertwine where pagan deities and pre-christian gods um mingle with kind of monks and animals and souls of the dead and so on a thoroughly strange um and altogether well fantastic voyage basically that's what these things are yeah each and every one of yeah whatever <laughs> no i agree with you i just they think are. they're magnificent they um and then to kind of for the sake of completeness, just to round off on the voyage. It be a drinking game where every time you, Claire Dill says, for the sake of completeness. Oh, do I say that a lot? And then for every time I say I just like broader European th- tradition, the yes. person has to drink or something. I just like to be thorough, Johnny. Mm-hmm. So to round off with um, St. Brendan's voyage, which again kind of takes on more Christian overtones, I suppose. It's the, the description of St. Brendan's journey to the land of promise. And as Johnny kind of mentioned in many of the Imrams, the parallels are the same. He visits countless islands. He has the Isle of Sheep. He has St. Alba's Isle that he visits. He encounters giant walruses. Is that the plural of walrus? Walry. Um, giant walruses. Um, he sees islands of great beauty and abundance. We've got plentiful food and feasts. We've got birds. We've got lakes. We've got forts, running water, all very idyllic. And in one of them, he actually comes across Judas um, Iscariot, who has been exiled to hell. And he has a day off, so to speak, and he's, nice. he's sitting on the island. And then Brendan, in, in, great, in a great show of charity, he actually gives him food for the, for the kind of day that he's on the island. And actually, I won't read the whole poem, but um, Robin Flower, who wrote the lovely book, The mm. Western Island, which is only quite small. I'd recommend everyone book. read it. It's lovely of his time that he spent on the Blaska Islands. Mm-hmm. He actually penned a poem called Brendan. But um, at the the very end, he says, huge ice hills, ghostly in the ghostly sky, loomed over his frail boat. And on one gleaming pinnacle, there clung a chained and brooding shape, Iscariot, caught one day's length out of hell. Hmm. Um, So he he would return to hell. But for that one day, he was sitting on this island in, in exile. And he was shown great charity by the lovely Brendan by giving him some food. But it's those same parallels, again, more Christian overtones of, the teachings of the church and whatnot they do they do come into they do interrupt into the descriptions of them that have come down to us see from the pre-christian descriptions they do far more so don't they but brendan is certainly one to remember because we'll touch on it briefly at the end because this is the imran above all the others that had greater international impact we've mm. seen it in i think when we spoke about St. Patrick's Purgatory in one of the... Brendan's voyage had an impact on Dante's... Yes, uh, well, yes, it's true. Some would argue that it could possibly have that um, Dante's tutors would have been aware of it. But we'll kind of come on this to see how it travelled across Europe, given the kind of trading links that we had in Ireland with Mm. the likes of Spain and France, Italy and Britain, and how these stories would have travelled with the merchants and mariners back to these Mm. countries and impacted not only the kind of maps and geographical development that was happening at the time but also the narrative tales and the kind of the cultural melee that was happening in Europe at the mm-hmm. time as well and we'll see that but Brendan's um, voyage is certainly one to remember and then there's the lovely book by Tim Severin um, 
on Brendan's voyage where he, mm. where it's re- repeated because there's an element of kind of historical um it's taken as historical truth by many that by many, he, that yes. Brendan actually did make this voyage and yeah. it thought that he landed in America in Canada S- Newfoundland S- some said yeah that he got that traveled up by Iceland and so on um but yeah Brendan's voyage is one that I'm not as familiar with I think as well in Imran Maeldun at one point they land on one island which has a load of Brendan's monks on it and they tell Maeldun that Brendan made such and such a voyage which seems to have been the kind of the route for that to, to spread later on as, as an idea or as a story or whatever mm. but um but I guess yeah so to look at maybe again as some sort of broad overview that the other world is often someone rooted in the natural landscape associated with the west and the setting sun and the idea within that that these other world islands kind of manifest and appear and then that there are genres of of uh, the early literature particular genres that deal with first of adventures but then that focus on the voyages themselves and these characters who have these kind of fantastical other world journeys and then return and that's the other thing about the other world journey as well is that it often manifests as a sort of uh, a there and back again yes. you know that that you return from this um hero's journey with a new kind of wisdom or having defeated something or overcome some sort of again which has a huge symbolic mm-hmm. component to it that you have to enter into to great peril and danger um, and then you come back victorious or whatever um, unless you just stay on the island full of blackened wailing people or the island of laughing shouting people but yes. <clears throat> you have these images and visions um, and then you return but um but up to the to the kind of the present day i suppose the, in more recent folk tradition there are a number of of other world islands which are said to exist the most famous of which is is known as high brazil which we should talk about yes for the next hour for the next hour for the next two weeks i know that we're at like what we're at kind of 15 minutes but i think we should just keep going because it's i'm i'm having a blast well i'm i always struggle but anyway well <laughs> sorry i meant struggle. no no but um but i'm just worried because like editing for you will be a bit of a, a i don't think we're period. gonna edit too much out okay. i'm just gonna edit all the bits where you say stuff i'll probably have to edit them out okay um, so, but I mean, we're still, yeah, it should be edited. Okay, but I correct. think like, oh, it's going to be an hour. It can just be longer than an hour. Yeah, so they can always switch off. Yeah, or, or come back to it. That's true. That's yeah. true. Okay, perfect. Hello. Is there anybody yeah, out yeah. there? So, um, well, I think before we go Brazil. to High Brazil, just because we'll spend more time on that, just to kind of give people a f- flavour of the diversity, um, Westrock goes through geographically moving from the south of Ireland mm. to the north, just a list oh, of islands. Yes, yeah. So I might just list them off and then people can do a bit of further research on them because they're hugely interesting. But we'll kind of come back to Brazil. Mm-hmm. But you've got the Cantillion Rocks off Ballyhagan, County Kerry, with very interesting links with that family, which um, if that is your surname, you should, if you you probably are aware of it, but if you're not, it's worth looking up. You've got the Great Kilstiffin mm. near Loophead in County Clare, which our director, Dr. Krista McCarthy writes about mm-hmm. um, in an interesting chapter that we should include a link to. Then you've got um, Bagaran, which is very mm-hmm. interesting, off the coast of Galway Bay. <coughs> Did you want to say a little bit about this? Because this is what's, um, there's a very famous poem about High Brazil written by Gerald Griffin, but he says that Ara is holy, but High Bra- Brazil is blessed, hmm. which um, I quite, the distinction. Yeah, Bilgoran was, um, I suppose, another of these, I mean, with High Brazil and Bilgoran, there's lots of the similar kind of motifs mm. and narratives attached to them. And some so, often confuse both of them in the literature, which confuses yeah. me even more. But again, it just points to the existence overall of, in, in a kind of symbolic framework, that that uh, that these islands exist, that mm. they appear every seven years or every 70 years, and they just rise out of the sea, um, that they can be disenchanted if you throw soil on them when you land there. Mm. Um, or fire. Or fire. Mm. Um, and then as well as that, that there are often narratives surrounding 
not just the existence of the island or its sudden manifestation, but that fishermen, when the island isn't there, will often pass over this undersea world and they can see people or they'll they'll catch uh, skillets in their hooks or boiled potatoes or something like this and that or, or someone will come up out of the water and say can I have my skillet back I need it to make my dinner or something True. like that um, or you'll st- some of the fishermen around Bjorgorn would sometimes describe seeing um, heather and things floating on the water far out at Miles sea out, yeah. yeah and the idea being that there's another there's another world there basically um, but Bjorgorn just fits into that kind of that overall um, I suppose corpus I would see in that mm. While not identical with with High Basel, say it, it symbolically, I think it just it fits into the same the same framework. But there are different narratives attached to both islands. Yes. The, the, in in folk tradition of the particular areas. So, whereas High Brazil is largely associated with the area around Kirkcalhena and Kerry, um, and Bjorgorn largely around Connemara and Charlerua and places like this, that there are different narratives that are told by the people about mm-hmm. that place, basically. But they're often one family. What was the the Doctor Lee? Thing. Do you know what that crack was? Oh yes, that was very interesting. That's Bjorgorn. That's Bagar. No, is it? Yeah. But see, this is the interesting thing. Because well, maybe it, it splits it, across. It does. It, I think it splits across. And this is why you have to be so careful with the literature and scholars who are perhaps not familiar with the um, corpus of material because they do seem to get very easily confused. And I'm very susceptible to being easily confused. So this does not help me. Well. Um, so they do confuse High Brazil and Bagarn quite often, I think. But certainly in one... There is one um, legend type where it tells of a man from, and um, I actually have it here. I only found it when I was I had to present some stuff in Shararua a while ago about oh, yes. the sea and other world stuff, and I had never heard of the story of Doctor Lee, and it was told about Bjorn. And, he, and he, yeah, so it's again, it just shows the variability that it's attached to all of these. It is, but I have um a, an extract here from one of the main manuscripts from Bartley. O'Connelia from Galway and he is speaking about um, Thomas Martin Lee, so one of the Olies, um, I suppose that's the surname is it, Olies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from Galway and again it, the motifs are all the same that he travels to this other world island and he is given the opportunity instead of, he kind of goes to, he goes to disenchant it. he does with yeah, fire yeah, yeah. kind of from his pipe and those on the island say actually you can do that or you can take this book um, and he has a lovely line here, which I think, where is it? Um, oh, yeah. Which I'll give you a, a way of life forever um, to see you through life. And this man on the island gives him a, a book of medicine, which is said to contain all the cures of the world. Mm-hmm. And Bartley, or this Thomas Martin really um, says, all right, I'll take the book. And he goes home and he's told, you can't open this book for a certain amount of time. And lo and behold, it becomes... Um, the great medicine book of Ireland which is actually it's called the Olise medicine book now and it's actually viewable in the Royal Irish Academy Amazing. and if someone looks up Irish script screen it's a wonderful facility online where different repositories around Ireland have digitized collections it and put amazing. them online yep. it's incredible you can see the originals you can hugely so um if you look up if you, I think actually if you just search for Olise medicine book or medicine book it'll come up and immediately you have this link between this ancient, ancient story tradition uh, and a very tangible book mm. that is said to have come from this mythical island. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. Yeah, I love amazing. those quirks. Yeah. And in the same way that, as you said, c- certain fishermen um, who visited islands were given the option of taking something and we'll come up kind of to the story motif again. But there's a story about a fisherman being offered anything in this house on an island he wanted. Yes. And he said... 
I'll actually take that skillet. And in one of the recollections that we have in the manuscripts, someone says, and that skillet still belongs to that family down mm. in, in Kerry, which I just love that continuation of the legend, basing it in social in, realism. In real life, in the domestic. Yes, that it was yeah. someone, knew someone who went, mm. and we still have this item. That is told about um, Brassel and Brassiel as well, where the... the um, so sorry, but no, you were going on through lists of islands there. Oh, sorry. Yes, sorry, yes. yes. No, you bought in away, Johnny. Well, that's sorry. Don't at... mind me. So just to finish off, we have um, we had Bagara. Then there's also it's worth noting Inish Boffin, which mm-hmm. actually does exist, but pe- I've been there. Yes, yes indeed. Yeah. So um, but people actually said that that is a disenchanted island mm-hmm. that was once a mythical island, but that it was disenchanted by fire and so became real. Then you've got the likes of Cheerhudi in the north near Donegal, um, and you've got Monashir Lyra which is off County Mayo. So a few islands wor- well worth researching mm. what lays off your coast, mm-hmm. really, if you've never heard of it. But a, a huge amount, a surprising number, I have to say, for those of us who weren't acquainted with them, of mythical islands off our west coast. And all westerly, again. And yes. there's even there's early literature from Leinster which describes that individuals going out in the battle will be killed um, at the it's like the westward ebb, or the ebb, which is travelling westward to Tachtin, to Dunn's house, which you mentioned, that, that other island. Yes. That, that it's all westerly islands are the direction of the other world and the dead and also you mentioned there about um, Bjogoran and, and the Vraziel and stuff like this that the, the idea of taking an object um, but there's another narrative where an individual finds himself he goes ashore on this math- mythical island which manifests he goes to the fishermen the captain goes onto the boat or uh, the captain of the boat goes on, on, ashore and into a house on this mythical island and there's an old blind man in the house and a young woman and the blind man extends his hand to to offer him a handshake and the young woman uh, motions to him not to do it and she gives him a, a piece of iron or something which he mm-hmm. takes and he puts that into the old man's hand and the old man crushes and breaks it um, and then says my you have a very kind of strong what a strong hand you had or something and then the woman makes him um, some food but kind of bids him escape basically but she offers him any, everything anything that he anything that's there she's like you can you can have and he chooses some kind of silly mundane item and then goes away uh, but she then later chases him, was very displeased and kind of, um, well, suggests that he's a useless idiot because mm. he meant, she meant her. Yeah. You know what I mean? That you can, you can like take anything you have her and he picks a bloody skillet or whatever. Mm. Um, so again, the connection of kind of the other world woman who, who takes the man away or something like that is a kind of common theme. And it's told, there's a piece here uh, in from one of the main collection manuscripts that were collected in, in a Charirua. And this is a piece from Galway as well, and it describes in uh, in Bilgoran. It says, "If you set history on us not here, a gisgach balachi, say shana kahan us and throw one of you blaninchachum, and not to rushid rumikshe in Ilan." So the place that they were dried out on an island suddenly appeared. Honochid the machalig, yulan farog shahart the gaskasi bandruulesh. So they all came out of the boat, and this young man walked around, and he met a red-haired woman. We should the shul piece some more nainjig. Honnachid their father Ashtonona, Agus Honnach and Pharaoh Homaladine. Honnach and Taylefu, who Agus Vina Farraga Hor to Sevirir. So the t- they all get back into the boat and they leave. Now the tide comes up and the island disappears. And Darn the law of the Hidjaka, a Holigiri Holan, a Kudnachro. So some of them the next day wanted to go back to the island and others didn't. Ahu with the Ron or Huyerbe. So they, uh, they went back. And then it says, basically describes that the young man who would have walked around with this other world woman on this island, his net became hugely tangled okay. and he throws it over his shoulder as he throws it over his shoulder to try and kind of fix the um, the, the knots and things in it and um, he was swept over the ship the whole net everything was just pulled over the edge of the boat 
And so the rest of the fishermen thought it was him. It was her who, who took him, who took him away, basically. And then it says, So himself or the island were never seen again. So it's the idea that there is this kind of other community mm-hmm. and the idea of the other world. Woman is often a figure of a kind of feature whatever, who sweeps them on away. You see that in the early literature and you see it in much later folk tradition collected in the 60s, 70s, whatever, about this this place. And those motifs are kind of, in terms of migratory legends that we often speak about, they're seen in Scandinavian lore as well. <coughs> of this The crushed handshake in yes. particular, that's a Viking treasure yes, migratory that, that, legend. Yes, that's or it, yeah. because um, Dr. McCarthy speaks about, what is it? Yeah, the visit to the old troll, the handshake, and the discovery of buried Viking treasure in Ireland. Mm. So those stories those same motifs have translated and had an influence on our kind of other world stories here, we believe. Yeah, and the points, again, it points just to the international nature of these, yeah. these narratives that we you have so. from Scandinavia, from parts of Ireland, from Northwestern Europe. So you have a kind of strange complex of narratives relating between the Greek, the Mediterranean, you know, where are the pillars of the world that hold up the sky or the gates of the Atlantic, they're in the Western Isle. You have Plutarch mentioning these things. You have King Arthur going, going west to Avalon. You have the symbolism of kind of crossing the river Styx and so on to the other world to land of the dead which is located in the west far away the setting sun and blah 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 um, you have all the, the voyages which embody kind of aspects of pre-Christian belief melded with Christianity mm-hmm. or early Christian flavour as well all of these kind of tapestries and tangled threads that, that manifest still into the much later folk tradition that show this mix stretching again from from uh, from kind of Scandinavia all over Europe basically Absolutely. Um that shows, I suppose, yeah, the, the ability of the supernatural and the symbolic and the fantastic to suddenly manifest in the in the world of the mundane and, and so on. It's um, it's a fantastic corpus of str- and very inspiring and strange material. I it's think. true. No, I have to say, and I'm um, just to kind of tie in with something just so I don't forget it from my notes. There's the idea of, so not only do you see, kind of touching on the island of Brazil, not only are there the narrative legends where people see it, there are also those that they actually reach it. Mm. And then... In the middle, there are tales of the transportation of people to mm. this area, and what that kind of makes me laugh that um in some of the oh. articles, these sea beings, so yes, fishermen, for brilliant. example, this is excellent. Um, Dr. McCarthy has a sample from I think it's Kerry, where the fishermen are heading out for a day's fishing, and a gentleman comes up and says, "Oh, would you mind bringing me? Oh no, where are you going?" And they'll say, "Oh, we're heading such and such a place," and he'll say, "Oh, um, could I?" journey with you and think oh, of course pop on and then halfway out through the ocean with not a pick of mainland around them he says oh that'll do me now takes his pots and pans and jumps overboard and the fishermen are just in disbelief as to where this man has gone but it feeds into the symbolism of the submarine world mm-hmm. that he's now returning to hence why fishermen are seen to um draw up you know pots or pans or potatoes mm-hmm. or pieces of thatch and yeah. or even to pull up children yes yeah and, yeah and yeah this is where the sinister element as often happens in some of these legends that you see samples where children are kind of hooked on their clothes on their nets and they bring them up and they realize oh lord and they they return them but not long after that you'll see certain legends end with the fisherman took to his bed and and never and never arose again yeah so yeah kind of as Dr McCarthy was saying a lot of these narratives have various forms so some can be quite farcical and quite comical but then others can have darker undertones mm-hmm. so it's kind of just interesting to look at those different um, types the, the the narrative with the where the child is taken up and the captain of the, sh- of the boat very calmly says just to very carefully put it back into the, mm. the water and then everyone just suddenly start rowing for home and they just land in and a huge storm yeah. appears 
Um, well, I read out the piece from the manuscripts of the guy who gets the lift halfway through. It's Dude, a lovely little piece. Perfect. It is actually it's um, one of my favorites. So this is the, 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 the group of fishermen who are traveling away. Uh, and then they get a lift from, from a strange individual or he hops into the boat. It says, people from Dingle Harbour used to sail to Kilrush and Limerick long ago. But there was a boat leaving the harbour one day for Limerick for a load of salt. There were eight men to each boat. They had prepared the boat, and there was no key in Dingle in those days, or in only Morden Line's slipway. I'm not sure if Morden Line's slipway itself existed then, but this fine, strapping young man approached them carrying a pot and a new pothook. The pothook looked like it came straight from the forge. He addressed the boat's captain. Are you going to Limerick, my good man? He said. I am, said the captain. We're just about to leave. Would you mind terribly, my good man? He said, taking me with you some of the way. I don't mind, said the captain, if you wish to come all the way. He placed the pot and pothook in the boat and got in himself. They rowed away to the mouth of the harbour, and when conditions were right, they hoisted the sail and voyaged on till they were midway between Bajalia and the Fiach. And that was when the man with the pot roused himself. Beg pardon, my good man, said he to the captain. I'll be leaving now, and I'm very grateful to you. He took hold of his pot and his pothook, and he leapt into the sea, and they never saw him again. I suppose it was there that he lived, in Brasil, beneath the sea. Sometime afterwards, a man was fishing with a hand line in the same place. A boiled potato came up on his hook. <laughs> it's great. It's amazing. And also the idea that, that Brasil is a place beneath the sea, mm. as well as a magical island that appears on top of it, but that for the rest of its time, it's, it's beneath it. So sometimes it's said that it, it manifests every seven years. Mm. In other instances, it appears every 70 years, but that... On certain occasions, this island will suddenly appear, but it'll disappear. But when it's not there, it's still there. And you'll be rowing over, like Maeldun, rowing over the flowery orchards and, and this kind of this fruiting plain and so on beneath them. Um, similarly, fishermen travelling over a certain area will see houses, they'll see you know, smoke rising from chimneys or people walking on roads beneath the sea, and they'll yes. see this whole kind of strange panorama. Or men and horses... Um Riding out to the sea every now and again, which is very interesting as well. If you look back at, at the early literature, Tachdin and Dun, the deity had horsemen, red horsemen. Mm -hmm. So again, think of the setting sun, red, black, the names of the gods, whatever, who rode on on horses, um, and they prophesied death. But they they said, "What is it that we are the the riders of toothless Dun from the Tumuli? Although we are living, we are dead." That was their kind of, mm -hmm. and then they would take people and they would ride them back off to the to the island. Um, but the idea sometimes of the sun god as riding on a horse mm. um, that kind of can't be caught, as riding a horse through the sky. And again, all the figures of red, dark, you know, or black, red, um, and this figure that kind of travels through whatever. It's just, um, it's an incredible panorama of symbolic information Hugely that we so. need to be aware of mm. and mm. think about, especially in the sense of, of, of um, the way that we think about the landscape around us in symbolic terms or in kind of, in, in terms that aren't purely material, as in here is a, rock clanking in a void or whatever you know what I mean that that there's a kind of spiritual meaning to the landscape or the natural landscape and the way that we understand it uh, even if that's wholly symbolic or kind of imaginative but that it's it's important that we think of the landscape around us in these ways I think it's just think. important to be a bit more mindful really and just to mm. take the time I don't I don't think we allow ourselves that opportunity anymore we, we always feel like we have to be rushing and moving forward so to actually take the time to look around us in life sometimes and mm -hmm. appreciate what we have and the beauty that surrounds us the little joys mm -hmm. you know you have to look for those you do you must and um should we leave it there i think that's a nice um line to leave it on yeah always just kind of look for the little joys folks i think that's what i, I always imagine when you're on the periphery like our forebears were looking into the unknown just to think that there was a land of the blessed beyond I think would have given them comfort I think it's about 
looking into the unknown and oh, hoping that it's right. going to be something positive at the end. Journeying into the, the unknown and, uh, well, steering into the strange, adventurous otherworld of the unknown. Mm. And, um, no, you're totally correct. It is a thing that we should bear in mind and do in our own lives. Absolutely. What else are we going to do? Well, very true, very true. Don's riders will come and take us all away. So in the meantime, we should go and find strange islands or at least travel across the sea and take potatoes out of it and stuff. Um, I don't think so. I'll just buy mine. All right. Well, Thank you. As the last piece from the archive, or a treat from the archive, as it were, there is a piece here which relates broadly to what we've been discussing in a sense of it doesn't relate to, to the idea of an island that appears but it describes a kind of classical version of an other world panorama another world vision mm -hmm. which manifests and it's being told in the context of, of um, again of the arts and how sometimes there's a connection between musicians and singers and the other world that they receive their gift from other world beings like junior Korean fiddler fantastic fiddler from Clare and so on and in this instance Michael Coleman the amazing fiddler player um, from Sligo in this instance, PJ Duffy is telling us how the Coleman brothers had this strange experience while they're walking through the land one day and they become set astray, I think, and they have this, this vision and they, they see a whole landscape open up to them and then it suddenly disappears. So I figured it kind of worth, um, I suppose, showing an, an, exam an example of how some of these other world kind of um, visions can kind of manifest. Although it doesn't relate to the island, it's part of the same corpus, I think. And then there's some tunes of the Coleman's to finish this off. So with that... We shall bid people farewell and see them on High Brazil or something. And have a very safe journey wherever you're headed. Have a dangerous and fantastic one and then we can talk about it when we see you there. Oh, you're always so grim, Johnny. What do you mean? No, what, dangerous what? and fantastic. Dangerous and fantastic. How is that possible? Who wants a safe journey to another world island? I do. <laughs> well, I don't. Okay, We'll take go. separate boats yes. and we can tell our stories when we get there, right? <laughs> well, I think I'll be arriving. You probably won't. Okay, well, we shall see. <laughs> We shall see. All right. I shall see you, well, soon, next time. Next month. Yes. Have more of our trips. Go on. You're standing here now beside that field where Michael Coleman and his brother Jim were supposed to have their strange experience way at the early years of the century. But um, they're supposed to end up in a beautiful garden with lush grass and cattle grazing away in the fields and kept on walking and it opened up into a vast landscape so um they sat down on a stone and started to play music and the music sounded the most beautiful music that ever the heard came from that fiddle that night and it sounded and sounded and echoed across these beautiful plains and, but um and just as sudden as it came about the whole thing faded away there was a noticeable improvement in the music as a result of this mm -hmm.